Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to episode 14 of Why Are People Into That? a podcast for expanding your sexual imagination. I'm your host, Tina Horn, and my guest today is writer and porn star Connor Habib. On every episode of Wire People Into That, which you can stream for free at wirepeopleintothat.com or download from iTunes, on every episode, I sit down with an expert on human sexuality and we pick a subject they love to talk about and we explore why people love or obsessively desire that thing so much. We are exclusively sponsored by Smitten Kitten, who just sent me these fucking adorable stickers. One is a cat with a unicorn horn that says LGBTQIA per hide. And the other is a growling bear that says fierce, which is, I'm just, it's just everything for me right now. So check out smittenkittenonline.com. So this summer, I was at a gay writer's retreat in Los Angeles, like you do. And I stayed one extra day in the land of succulents and carnitas to go over to Connor Habib's house. And you know when you go to someone's house and they just have bookshelves everywhere you look? books piled on the floor, a package containing new books on their front stoop, and you just want to kind of like roll around in their books. Anyway, that's the kind of creep I am, and that's the kind of library that Connor Habib has. Now, Connor is just one of the best sex worker writers out there, and besides writing about porn performer rights and sexual liberation, Connor is a student of the occult. Now listen, I lived in the Bay Area for 10 years, and I know some wingnuts and some motherfucking sorcerers, okay? And I, you know, I I want to believe, but I can also be a bit skeptical about this kind of thing, a little cynical about this kind of thing, but I will be goddamned if Connor does not make a completely cogent case for things like heart magic and anal sex as transubstantiation and why BDSM ritual threatens those in power. All stuff I'm really into, so you don't want to miss this one. So I want you to guzzle some love potion number nine and levitate three feet off the ground while you listen to Why Are People Into the Occult? Connor Habib, here we are on your couch in sunny, beautiful Los Angeles. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm great. Yeah. Cool. Um, I'm um, I'm a little spaced out. I just came back from a 
gay writers retreat, but I, I started thinking about it a couple of days ago. If there's anybody that I could have a soft landing with from that experience, it would definitely <laughs> be you. All right. Awesome. <laughs> I really, I mean, truth be told, I, um, I mostly stayed in LA one extra day so that I could podcast with you. No so. way. Yeah. Really? Well, I'm going to, and then I'm going to go karaoke tonight. <laughs> really about the karaoke it was mo- yeah you were you were um you were a happy uh a part of that um, awesome. um but uh i'm so happy that you're on the podcast um uh i know you as an amazing gay porn star and also as an incredible writer um i love people who uh have both of those <laughs> worlds uh-huh. uh, that's my jam um and uh, you've written uh, a lot of uh, really important articles, and I think you have a really great social media presence as well. Um, and you have a book coming out later this year or next year? Ne- next year. Um, the book is called, it was just re- re-entitled, oh. uh, The Sex Book, uh, Myths, Positions, Taboos, and Possibilities, and it's uh, being released by Disinformation Books. And... Uh, yeah, that'll be out next year. It's sort of a tour through the history, politics, science, economics, et cetera, et cetera, of sex, um, and where we sort of got things wrong to land on the attitudes towards sex we have in Western culture today, and maybe how we can do things a little better. My God, incredible. The <laughs> the history and where we're at, and also, like we were just talking about, suggestions for how to make change. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's incredible. Um, I can't wait to read it. Thanks. Um, the Disinfo um, book, Everything You Know About Sex is Wrong, total root for me. Like I mm. remember finding it in City Lights books in San Francisco a really long time ago and being like, I want to do that. I'm like, this is completely changing the way I think about this. Like, this is confirming everything that I always suspected about that. Right. So they're, they're really, they're great. They're like really good. Them. Yeah, they're really good for that. I mean, they totally changed my life too. And, you know, they sort of like, I don't want to say they faded away exactly, but they're, I mean, they had like this moment, right? Which was like a huge moment. And like a huge countercultural moment, and now it's sort of more of a undergroundy kind of thing. But that actually, like, it seems like a good place for them to be, <laughs> and I'm glad to, right. and I'm glad to be there with them in it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it just just all their cultural countercultural stuff from that sex thing to, you know, the the most important book they ever put out for me was this book called The Book of Lies, which yeah. was this occult book, and it was so profound and for me and just so bizarre and but you know there's nothing like yeah they do this sort of like tongue-in-cheek thing like exploring crazy conspiracy theories and stuff but they're also just very serious like they try to take things that you would sort of dismiss out of hand very seriously like Mm. what if these crazy things are true you know um instead of just sort of a joke about it you know there are a few other publishing companies that do that like feral house i think does that and and akashic like they just take these countercultural currents very seriously. Um, and I think it's awesome. Yeah, I think it's important. And I do think that with sexuality, it's extra important because <laughs> there's a lot of disinformation <laughs> about, right. about sexuality. And um, I mean, that's part of the reason that um, it can continue to be endlessly explored and no one is ever going to be tired of 
having sex or talking about sex or right. um, or analyzing it. Although I had a conversation um, at the retreat this week where people were saying, oh, people don't want to have their their fetishes explained to them. That's a boner killer. And I was like, whoops, that's the whole premise of my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Slash the whole premise of my work. But I really don't believe that. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe it either. In fact, I think the most... Probably one of the most pernicious myths about sex is that you're not supposed to think about sex or that sex is anti-intellectual. Right. And I find that so, like, I, I think that is the most, like, hallmark, like, if there's a hallmark version of sex, like, that's it. It's like this capitalist construct that, like, when you have sex, you're supposed to be completely immersed and, like, connected and you're not supposed to think at all. But, well, that's one type of sex. It's not really the sex that most people have. Yeah. Which is, like... You know, you're getting banged from behind and you're, like, thinking about, like, oh, shoot, I can't forget to, like, go to the pharmacy tomorrow and get, you know, make sure I do laundry and blah, blah, blah. Like, thoughts enter your mind, you know, or, like, what does my hair look like? Am I doing, you know, does this blowjob make me look fat or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> just, like, whatever, you know, like, all these thoughts enter your mind. And so, like, sex and thought are, like, go together all the time. But it's, we're told that it's supposed to be totally immersive. And then when it's not... Because we're told that we feel like, oh, well, I want something deeper. I guess that must be what it's like to have sex with someone you're really in love with. So, and then, you know, the, much to your chagrin, you realize that, like, you're still thinking when you have sex with people you love. And, <laughs> you know, and so. Well, and also I, that then um, that's uh, fertile ground for you or sort of it, to mix metaphors, it like opens the door for feelings of inadequacy and insecurity and guilt and shame, which are like ready to come rushing in. Totally. Um, and, and um, be manipulated by people and institutions uh, in power. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. Well, you should, you should buy this thing to create that feeling. You should. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's mostly it. <laughs> right. Or you have to get drunk before you have sex. Like, right. or you have to get drunk even to talk to people, like to yeah. initiate sex or you have to be in love if you're going to have sex or like intoxicated with love or, you know, and it's just like, no, you can just think during sex and about sex and it's fine. So, I mean, I think that there's some value in like having an immersive sexual experience. I just think that it's privileged over all kinds of sexual experience and it's in fact very rare and it's not necessarily better. Absolutely. Well, um, I agree with that and I, um, I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of that kind of stuff in your book and your writing in general. Um, but let's go back to what you were saying about what um, disinfo, a lot of what disinfo does with the occult. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, when I actually, uh, so when I lived in London, I was good friends with a guy named Jason Louvre who, oh, yeah. who uh, worked oh, for, yeah, I had yeah. seen that he had interviewed you yeah. um, and um, that was a weird connection of, of uh -huh. worlds or not that weird i guess um but um yeah jason has a book out um called generation hex through yeah. um through disinfo and he introduced a lot of ideas about the occult and a lot of ideas of how sex and magic might go together um and ritual and um and and sex might go together um that, and a lot of it, honestly, nerdily enough, was um, my touchstone for that was Grant Morrison's Invisibles series. Yeah, and totally. Grant Morrison also works for Disinfo yeah. or has done in the past. Um, uh, 
I'm, you know, basically with Jason, he was kind of like, oh yeah, all that stuff in that comic that you really loved when you were a teenager is totally real. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm just wondering, um, so I guess that that was the connection that I made when I realized that that was a part of your world as well, or, mm-hmm. um, uh, or you were a part of that world. Um, when I was first um, sort of becoming familiar with your stuff and I saw you had been interviewed by Jason and and talking about that. And so um, I guess that's as good enough a place to start as any. I'm really curious about uh, your relationship to... First of all, what what is your definition of the occult? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um, That's so funny. I've never been asked that before. Um, It sort of defies definition. Yeah, I mean... I think it's only, I think the occult, let's put it this way. The occult is, uh, is when you become aware of the stuff that's happening to you all the time anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's just sort of a level of awareness about experience. You know, like I think everybody goes through initiation and enlightenment and weird, weird shit in their lives. Right. But if, but the occult is like, if you're engaged with the occult, you're just sort of aware of some of the weirdness or aware of the initiation, aware of the enlightenment happening or aware of like whatever, but it, it happens to all of us in our lifetimes anyway. You know, so I think it's, I think the occult is sort of a level of awareness, which, you know, I mean, occult means hidden. So I mm. think it's like, once you know something is hidden, it's not hidden in the same way anymore. Yeah. And you can show other people the way to the hiding spot. Right. Or even if you don't know, where the hiding spot is knowing that it's hidden means that you know that it's there if it's just hidden you don't you're not even aware of its existence right right? so most people who are involved in a cult just know that there's something there and then once you get through a certain amount of practice you might be able to say start identifying these (laughs) something more tangible something you can or intangible as it were like something that's you can start talking about it in a more aware way, you know? Yeah. But the first step really is just knowing that things are not as they seem always, you know? Yeah. What an exciting idea. Um, and how did that first become a part of your life? <laughs> Who knows? Like, I mean, I was always into, I was always into it. I was raised a spiritually, mm-hmm. My father is from a village in the mountains of Syria, so he was maybe a little Christian, some supernatural gypsy stuff mixed in there, probably. Um, my mom was raised by religious fundamentalists. Neither of them had any inclination to take their children to church. Um, so <clears throat> I was somehow still, nevertheless, always interested in religion and spirituality. And um, my imaginative landscape and... Uh, whatever lived there and so um you know i was a kid and i I found this book called curses hexes and spells which i still have i stole it i stole it from my school library who knows why that was there and i did all this like black magic stuff when i was a kid like (laughs) with that book was like these fumbling attempts that i still sort of regret doing in a weird way it's interesting and um you think you like opened opened something I, <laughs> up that you never closed again <laughs> yeah i mean in a way it's like it, it's that, that kind of stuff leaves like these doubts like did i 
did I create a little bit of a scar on my being or was mm. I just a kid doing this dumb stuff and who knows, mm. you know? Yeah. It's, it's like anything. I mean, when you're a kid, it's like your consciousness is not fully dis- descended in the same way as it is, you know, when you're an adult. So it's like, do you blame kids for what they do or not? You know, like, do you hold yourself responsible? Was that just part of my karma? Like, whatever. Um, well, whatever you experimented with then had to happen for you to get to where you are now. Abs- so. abso- absolutely. And it's sort of like, uh, I mean, I don't really stress. I don't stress about it too much. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm sure but like, you, you seem very relaxed. <laughs> but, I, but I think about, but I think about those times, like, why was I into that stuff? Like, why was I into it as a kid? You know, really, really strange. You know, you can ask why and give yourself an answer up to a certain point, but then it's like, there was something going on with my, you know, what my being that I was supposed to be interested in. That. Uh, yeah, I mean, I look back and I wonder, you know, why I was into Ani DeFranco when I was a kid. So, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> like, yeah, you know, we all. But I'm sure, I'm sure it helped in some way. <laughs> totally, I think yeah. Like with any question of aesthetics, like you trace it back far enough, and it just becomes a mystery. You yeah, know, it just fades into the horizon yeah so you had this book and you were you know um dressing in black and, and <laughs> lighting candles and close enough listening yeah. to metal and yeah i was much younger i mean i was like 10 or, or, or something and i'd been interested before then too in a weird way um like i'd always sort of been interested in like mysterious beings and monsters and that kind of stuff as i got older um you know, there were there were some other sort of touchstone moments for me. Um, but even, you know, my first memory is this sort of weird occult memory. And my first memory is a memory of a dream. Um, and in the dream, I was eaten by a fox who was eaten by a wolf who was eaten by a bear. And I was inside the bellies of like, it was like if you cross-section them, you could see them almost in this like strange native american mosaic looking thing like you could see the insides and i and i woke up from that dream and ran sort of tottered down the hall to my parents bedroom and i mean i must have been like two or three like so so the first thing i remember is waking up from a dream of being inside of animals (laughs) and uh and so i mean even like when i look at that i'm like that's weird like it's weird that it was a dream it's weird that that was the content it's weird that that's you know, I mean, this is the first thing I could remember. I mean, maybe I hadn't viewed that as an occult thing my whole life, but looking back, it just seems very strange, yeah. you know? Um, although I suppose everyone's first memory feels sort of dreamlike um, and strange. So, so as I got older, you know, yeah, just sort of accumulating experiences and, and, and interest, and it just sort of just kept building and building. Did you experience... Um skepticism from people around you or internalized skepticism in in LA how did how did that form your your development because I'm sure that Hmm. I mean in general I think that people are would be confused by that or even um put off by that I'm certainly not but I'm just right. curious what what you may have encountered in in that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting uh, now that I think about it. Since you ask, it's like, no, I grew up in small town Pennsylvania. Everybody was religious, so 
they believe there was some reality to it. You know what I mean? They might have thought that it was wrong. Right. They might have thought it was immoral, but they thought that it was real. And I think that that's part of like the sort of blessing of growing up around a lot of religious fundamentalists. It's like you get to take shit seriously. I mean, that were, they weren't fundamentalists, I, but I'm just saying in general. I mean, there were just a lot of Catholic churches and Protestant churches and stuff in my town. And... You know, in high school, too, I think kids really take it seriously. I think kids know it's like why they use a Ouija board or why they play light as a feather, stiff as a board or why they do Bloody Mother Mary or whatever. It's like you have this real deep feeling for the supernatural when you're a kid up until a certain point. And, um, and, and, and by extension, the occult, and that might just be religious or, 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 or whatever, but I think you're just in touch with it. Even because we say that that's true for little kids, but I think it's true for teenagers as well. It definitely is true. Well, you're also, I mean, just as a teenager, you have more agency and more control and you're pushing against it. Right. And experimenting like we were just talking about. And um, and you have a little bit more power um, and self-awareness than you did when you were younger. So you may be pushing against the limits of that in a more self-conscious way. Totally. And I think even like people who might be inclined to be atheists or whatever um maybe because they had a a fundamentalist upbringing or whatever like when they're at that age they still want to believe in some of it like they still want to like scare their friends with ghost stories or tell them about some weird experience like there's there's an excitement about it Mm -hmm. whereas as you get older either it doesn't happen or there's a sort of dismissal of it, like, oh, there must have been an explanation or right, right. whatever. And I think that's because as you get older, your individuality is more solidified. And in that sense, the rest of the world is sort of uh, blocked off more and more, um, which is a really amazing and, and profound and beautiful thing. But it requires then some effort to access that other, that other sort of realm of your life, that imaginal realm. So how is that connect so how is your relationship to the occult related to your relationship to sex? <laughs> so um I mean in lots of ways you know uh, I I don't do sex magic stuff. I've never really been interested in it. Oddly, like it would seem like a no-brainer for me, but right. I've just never like, sex itself seems so powerful. It's like, why am I... I don't need to add extra, like, shit to it. Like, it seems like its own mystery to me that, like, like adding this... Bringing this dimension in, it's like, if I actually just look at what's happening, you know, um, as, I, as I do it, that's a weird enough experience unto itself, you know? How would you define sex magic? Well, sex magic, I think, is like... First of all, it's not totally true that I never did sex magic. Well, I'll get back to that in a second. Okay. But like, I'll remember uh, okay, that. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I was just realizing as I said that how disingenuous that was. But I've not really been seriously interested in it in a way that someone might expect. Right. Um, sex magic is like, yeah, harnessing harnessing the energetic power of, of sex to... Uh, to, to either sort of learn about the universe, in other words, to do some sort of divining thing, mm-hmm. um, or to create change in, in in your world, or to attract things to you, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think sex always does that anyway. 
Um, I mean, everything does that anyway. It's just whether you're aware of it or not. Right. Some people, but but some people do ritualistic things around sex to make that more obvious to them. Um, I have done sex magic in the sense that, like you, Grant Morrison was a really important sort of magical figure for me. Mm-hmm. And so I would do these sigils, like right. where he would advise creating this magical symbol and empowering it with this sort of strange mental space of an orgasm. Right. Interestingly enough, <laughs> the first sigil I ever did, it, it, knowing that that's what it was called, I'd done some things when I was a kid, like some rituals that were kind of similar just sort of fumbling through on my own but when I sort of learned about it I saw Grant Morrison do this demonstration on disinfo you know conference or whatever I think I've seen that right (laughs) so so I did it that day and my sigil was to meet Grant Morrison (laughs) and then I did like like a month later like and suddenly I was at this disinfo conference in New York State and it was me and I don't it wasn't a lot of other people it was like 20 or 30 people just hanging out with Grant Morrison and Doug Rushkoff and Richard Metzger and Howard Bloom and um, Howard Bloom and um, and uh, Paul Lafoli for the weekend. Wow, I'd like to be a fly on the wall for that <laughs> experience. It was profound. I mean, it was absolutely profound. Um, and 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 I, you know, forged some friendships not with Grant but with Doug and and Richard uh, because of that. And that was a long time. You know, that was two thousand and. 2002 or something like that i can't mm. remember the exact year so that was the first sigil i ever did and then i met him so it was it, i was like wow well that's confirmation yeah because i was like how am i ever possibly going to meet this dude from scotland and then suddenly i saw an ad for him speaking in new york state when i lived you know in new england so it was pretty awesome and i just wanted um sort of describe a little bit for our listeners who may not be familiar with what the um, concept of a sigil mm. is that, um, uh, and I definitely also learned it from from Jason Louv and um, and then who sort of directed me to um, Grant Morrison's um, uh, presentations, and I actually think there's a chapter on it in that um, in generation. Oh yeah, but also in everything you know about sex is wrong. I, I'm, oh, pre- I'm cool. pretty sure that um, that Grant like sort of like lays out. Um, how to do it. So basically, like, if you, you know, you have an intention, like, uh, you know, like, I want to meet Grant Morrison. And, you know, long story short, you, you make a sort of obscure symbol. You, like, construct a symbol out of the language. And then, dur- yeah, during masturbation, during sex, like, during the moment of orgasm, you, like, concentrate on the um, image that you've made. And that's the sigil. And it is supposed to, you know cast the spell out into the world like using the head the consciousness of orgasm and the power of orgasm and um you it, you know you can spin around um until you're dizzy you know you don't have to have an orgasm but like you know if if that's right. if that's one of the options it sort of seems like that right. would be the one to do totally um but it can be any kind of of um meditative state is my understanding um and you know I definitely first heard about that when when The Invisibles was coming out and Grant mm. Morrison was really sick and he asked all mm. of the, all of his fans to um you know masturbate and cast a sigil to keep um the comic going um and and they did and and to save his health I think as well uh-huh. and, um <laughs> 
Anyway, again, with the stuff that um, I was, that captivated me when I was younger as fiction. And then, you know, the wonderful thing about getting older and realizing, oh, there's something to that. It, you know, it's sort of counter of what you were saying before of getting older and becoming more skeptical and more closed yeah. off. Um, it's nice to um, see the lines between um, fiction and reality be blurred more as, a, as we get older. But anyway, so, so that's, and so mm. you did something like that and then you got to meet Grant Morrison and, right. um, and, and have you continued to do that kind of thing since? No, I don't really do magic in that sense anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, I mostly, if I do magic, it's sort of heart magic in the sense cool. of, you know, something that, so the mo- the most important spiritual thinker to me is this guy, Rudolf Steiner. And, um, we can talk about him if you, if you'd like, yeah. but his, but his message, it's sort of a maxim, right? Which I think a lot of occultists forget or don't know about or don't think about. I certainly didn't. So it's not, I'm not blaming anybody for not, but he said, you know, for every step in occult knowledge we gain, we must take three to improve our personalities so it's like I do a lot of just like trying to be a better person now because you know I, I understand a lot about the occult and sort of how the world plays itself out in a way and I'm kind of trying to catch up to that and not be an asshole to people not be vindictive or jealous or angry or unforgiving or you know resentful whatever so it's like, because th- this knowledge is so powerful that when it starts coming through you, it, it, it's really important to have sort of a clear lens through which that, you know, is is, is going to be projected into the world. Yeah. Otherwise, you just become this, like, either actually powerful and horrible or not really powerful but totally deluded person. And so... I know a lot of both of those kinds yeah, of Right, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, we, we, you know, like, we, we don't even have to bring the occult into it. I mean, you know people that write a beautiful book mm. or, like, a really important book about culture and then, like, are just monsters to other human beings, right? So, like, you're like, God, this book is so great, and you meet the person and they just, like, treat other people like shit. Oh, it's like that in, in music, absolutely, too. Yeah. Or any other kind of... Totally. Of, of cultural creation. Yeah, and it can't... It just can't... It just doesn't do what it's supposed to do if it comes through, you know, a dirty, le- dirty, but you know what I mean, lens. So you were talking about heart magic and and the just the importance of being a good person. I mean, it's in some ways it can be easier said than done, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, it's, I think the task of people that are engaged in the occult, and I know people are gonna. I know people will disagree with this, but it's fine. That's good. I'm happy to have them disagree. I love, um, I love disagreement. Is, is become a better, a kinder, more compassionate person. That's, that's it really. That's the bottom mm. line. But if you want to do other occult stuff while you're at it, um, <laughs> become a better, kinder, more compassionate, more loving person while at the same time doing your occult work. Divorcing the two, thinking that they're somehow separate, I just think does no good for anybody. I mean, after all, why do you even want to be involved in the occult? Like, you know, I mean, some people will say, 
well, I want power or I want to, I want to know the truth or, you know, whatever I want, I want to, I want to save, I want to, I want to stop like environmental degradation, like some cultists are, you know, neo-pagans and stuff are into that sort of thing. But it's like, yeah, but it, it really is about, it really is about the human being. But I mean, it also, I mean, I'm just really trying to think about this objectively in terms of what attracts people to it. Um, it's also sexy. Uh-huh. I mean, I think it's, it, why is it sexy? It's sexy because it's mysterious. It's sexy because it seems dark. Some people are attracted to darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Clearly, it obviously does not have to be dark. Um, uh, but I feel like there are a lot of, in America anyway, a lot of cultural associate associations with a sort of like a dark aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like a, it has a lot of potential for power and, um, and I, I love your description of, um, of the ultimate importance of it, uh, being to be a better person. Um, but I feel like there are a lot of um, sort of when I think of the archetype of an occultist, I sort of actually think of somebody who's like a little bit more like an aloof rock star kind of like Byronic kind of persona. <laughs> um, but maybe I just don't know enough um, white wizards. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Grant Morrison's a great example. I mean, it's like when he talks about his sort of like near-death experience that you had mentioned before when he was sick, um, he had a vision of Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> Who said like, you can live, but you got to do, you got to be good, you know? Yeah. And I need to refine that. It's not be good. It's do good because mm. be good is ego. Do good. Not that there's anything wrong with the ego. Like I actually think the ego is great, but do good is about something else than be good. So like, so, so he has this vision of Jesus Christ saying like, do good you know and he's like okay and so he goes and he he does all this like he's trying to figure it out i mean david lynch is another example of someone who's like a white magician in the sense that he starts he he does this the most incredibly dark and in some aspects the best portrayal of evil of any person ever that's absolutely true right but he's creates this like schools you know like for, right. for kids to learn meditation and become calmer more peaceful all that kind of stuff so it's like so you can still have that sexy chaotic crazy part but you, while you're doing good i mean it's like th- those are a great example i mean i think maybe she's fallen out of fashion a little bit but marina bromovich is another great example of yeah. someone you know i mean th- these people who are involved in the occult but doing these powerful well-known artistic things yeah i mean those are a lot of those people are what you would easily call white magician and they're having profound effects on culture well um yeah i've read um a little bit of david lynch's um uh work on transcendental meditation what is the name of his book it's like a coffee table book oh, about it's like f- something about fish. fish yeah i forget something about it. yeah i can't remember either it was my like back of the toilet book for <laughs> years because it's yeah. perfect you like open it up and you read this little vignette anyway um I hate that we don't remember. I hate when people don't remember the titles of books and they mention them because I'm like, God, if I were the author of that book, I'd be so bummed right you now. You know what, though? It's he's, David Lynch. It's David Lynch, so if you Google David Lynch fine. meditation book, <laughs> yeah, 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 he's totally, totally doing fine. Um, but the thing that I found um, uh, 
really fascinating about what he said in that book. I've always loved David Lynch movies, and I've always been very aware that there is something completely unique to his movies that defi- there are. It's so rich with symbolism, and at the same time, it con- like uh, it defies deconstruction. Mm-hmm. You know, there's never one meaning to an ear in the grass or a mm-hmm. you know red room or you know anything mm-hmm. anything like that you know um it has this like very particular obscurity to it and reading him talking about meditation and talking about how meditation makes it so that um he's just in touch with his instincts so when he's creating he just he just knows he knows that uh, that something needs to be a certain way in order to tell the story that he wants to tell. And the proof is in the pudding because the things that he makes are completely, um, you know, uh, difficult to understand and yet completely engaging at the same time. Right. That's like when, when you say that just reminds me like they're alive. I mean, I think it's just that that's the the quality of it. It's a yeah. lot, it's wild because it's living. Like, yeah. You know, just like a person is unpredictable and 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 layered and you know, he's created something that feels like it as if it has its own life, and indeed it it does. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Um, and so much um stuff about sexuality in um in those movies oh, as well. Totally. Um. Okay. So um, so going back to well, so so you were talking about um heart magic, and you were talking about Rudolph. Um, Steiner, mm-hmm. um, yeah, talk about that person. Okay. I'm not familiar with um, their work at all. Okay, well, I, I I have just shelves and shelves of this stuff over there. So Rudolf Steiner is uh, a late 19th, early 20th century scientist, mystic, philosopher. He it, he is responsible for creating biodynamic farming, Waldorf schools, oh. um, community shared agriculture a new form of beekeeping architecture, a new font, a new system of medicine, a new... He's just one of these people, very much like Leonardo da Vinci, much like um, Goethe, much like there are just a lot of these people. Yeah. Um, Newton, so on and so forth. And... Um, we need more good fonts. <laughs> right? Good fonts. All that other stuff is like important that. too, but really... The, totally. Well, I love that movie Helvetica where people are like, oh my God. This, is the, this is the font of fascism. You know, I actually find Helvetica kind of pleasing, but I, but I, but I like the people that are raging against it, you know, the aesthetic of it. Anyway, <laughs> so, so he, he, you know, his whole thing which is called anthroposophy is just which means you know the divine feminine wisdom of mm. of man um he you know could have said human but man, man sort of meant something different for a long time sure. um and so so he uh just his idea was that like look everybody has the right to the occult and it can find its way out of us in any field, in any place that we want. Like, you know, and, you know, you can be a banker and be an occultist banker. Like, what? how do you bring spiritual principles to banking? You know, how do you... That's a good question. You know, and he, well, he's, he, he did a, a lecture, a lecture series on economics. He did something like 6,000 lectures, um, had a, a bunch of books come out. So they're like... 
three or four hundred books altogether, like collecting his lectures and stuff like that. Um, you can be in the government, and like, how do you create a spiritual government? Yeah. Um, he 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 was pretty close to. He sort of referred to himself. He said, "If I have to, I'll call myself an anarchist." Right. But he was not an he he believed in some form of government, but it was so estranged from government that you could barely call it that. Um, and and so you know his principle is just sort of like let's spiritualize material and materialize spiritual stuff mm. and and the, there are a lot of really important principles um, so I'll just say four really quickly yeah please um, and, and and we probably don't have time to go into all of them but but I'll just give sort of a quick sentence which is so the first is that thoughts are as real as objects mm. there's not a division really in the way that we think between the sort of thinking world, which we dismiss as fanciful illusion, illusion right. and the material world. In fact, they're the same. Like they're, they're linked. They're not the same. They're distinct, but they're linked to each other. And the thoughts are as real. We need to take them as seriously as we do objects. And we need to create a worldview that regards thinking as part of the world, not just some sort of separate illusory dream aspect of the real in quotes material world the second is that consciousness has evolved over time um meaning that uh the structure of consciousness has changed over time so if you look at people who were in ancient rome the way they saw and experienced things was totally different than the way we experience things now there's some overlap but to believe that they just saw things that we did, yeah. yet they had different thoughts about them, is not correct. In fact, their entire system of perception, thinking, all that sort of stuff is different. And that's changed over time, and it's changed over time in different ways for different kinds of cultures. Um, Which maybe means that the texts created during that time prescribing behavior might be a little outdated. Totally outdated and also misinterpreted by us who think right. that it's supposed to relate to things in the way that we, you know, I mean, there's a famous example, actually, I think discovered by Goethe, who was a huge influence on Rudolf Steiner, who said like, uh, do you, have you noticed that the, um, Greeks never use the word blue for anything? Whoa. And then saying, so we could perhaps understand that they couldn't see that color. Wow. Um, so what does that mean? <laughs> so, yeah. so so what we could get <laughs> we get deeper into that if you want, but the, that's the, very psychedelic, the, the, <laughs> right? <laughs> so then the, then the third is that um, um, is that there is a spiritual landscape populated by spiritual beings. Um, it it's not just it's not just you know whimsy. Like there's a real spiritual landscape populated by spiritual beings, and then the fourth is just freedom and compassion. Uh, everybody deserves freedom. Everybody deserves compassion. Um, and those are my four breakdowns. That's not like some official anthroposophical. That's how I break it down into four points. I think those are the four tenets of this um, system of being alive and thinking. So is that not have a one-track mind, but um, <laughs> are those those principles, which, yeah, you're right, we could fucking talk about that for the rest of our lives and all day, but um, are they connected to your sexuality or the work that you do? Like, your personal sexuality, but also the, the professional um, sexuality 
work that you do. Yes. So um, the easiest one to identify is the last one, which is freedom and compassion, but in a, in a radical occult way. Um, so the first line in my book um, is, if you ever want to know how someone feels about freedom, start talking about sex. And the idea is sex is so individualized. It is the most individualized thing ever. Um, I, I, I sort of make an argument for this in the book, which I won't get into now, but it's like this nexus of who we, wh- where we were born, who our parents are, what our bodies are shaped like, what race we are, what our tendency toward orientation is, what are, you know, all these cultural factors. Um, and then beyond the cultural factors. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's all these sort of individualized predilections, these aesthetics, these things that we're interested in. And it's people interacting with other people. So it's this whole realm of of humanity that's totally individualized. So as soon as you start getting down to this totally individualized level, let's see what you think about freedom. Like, do you really think individuals should be free? People have such a hair-trigger response to different kinds of sexualities, even people who claim to be sex positive. Right. Um, and, And so... So that's how it sort of ties into that. How can we be compassionate for people that are utterly different? I mean, it works out in sexuality in a very obvious way. You and I walk down the street. I see some dude that I think is hot. And I'm like, I'm like, wow, that guy's so hot. And you're like, ew, him? Like, you literally cannot enter into the world that I'm, that's like creating this like stimulating action of desire in me you just can't fathom it it's totally alien i would never say that by the way i know i know (laughs) well that's part of the that's part of like the the training for like a new sexuality is like not shaming people for their tastes right or their desires but but i think that like and 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 so people like you are and, and people who have thought about sex you know know not to do that right but I try. Right. <laughs> right. Me too. But sometimes I don't want to succeed. But, but, but I'm being glib, but I also, I, it totally just happened last night. Somebody said, oh, that person is really hot. And I felt compelled to say, I'm not attracted to that person. Right. It's it, In a way, it's, um, especially when you're getting to know people, it's a way of, of defining yourself, um, you know, what, right. so that people know. And sometimes it has to do with gender and you want someone to know oh that it might be the kind of person that I'm attracted to anyway but right no totally I think there are lots of reasons why we do it yeah I um I, I bring it up just to say that like when we see that someone's sexuality or 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 orient sexual orientation or orientation to sex is a better way to say it hmm. is like totally foreign totally different than ours even though there might be similarities or cultural currents that run through everybody's can we extend compassion to them even knowing that they are totally separate from us, even yeah. knowing that they are totally alien? That's the real work of compassion. It's not like we're all one. It's you're totally different than me. You're a different universe altogether. Can I care about you anyway? Yeah. Um, it, or, for, or for that or for that reason. Yes, exactly. Or, or for that reason. Can I try to, can I 
put in the intentional effort of understanding. Yeah. And if I can't, can I put in the intentional effort of loving you anyway? Yeah. So, um, so that's where that principle plays out in sex, I think, um, is a radical individualism. Um, as far as, as far as the other things go, well, thought and thought and being as real as objects, I think that, uh, I think the trans movement is really showing us that a lot lately, which fuck is, yeah. I think is great. It's like, fuck yeah. I'm not just this body. Like, fuck you. Like this, there's something else present here. This is a powerful other thing happening, which by the way, the occult has always said that, I mean, some occultists have missed it, but the occult <laughs> has always said that male and female, well, masculine and feminine might be these sort of universal cosmic principles right and maybe even a cosmic polarity which may be changing right now maybe that law of nature is changing mm. at this moment in time but but that everybody contains both right so it's always said that like men have uh, a, a, a female etheric body and vice versa yeah and so like sometimes these things come closer together for people sometimes they're further away from each other but we all have these principles within us so it's like I th- I think that the, the the trans movement is making these powerful occult statements without even necessarily realizing it. And I know there are some trans atheist people that would just fucking hate that I'm saying this, but <laughs> that's okay. Um, anyway, so I think that that materiality aspect is being expressed by people who are talking about sex, gender, sexuality right now in a yeah. big way. I think also we can see that sex is not just the act of sticking a dick into a pussy or rubbing two clitorises together or you know all these things like it's not just the material stuff there's something else happening that's broader than than our bodies um and so i think that that's how it plays into that in my view and the other two i can get into those two but those are two examples of how they intersect i'm wondering we were talking about consent a little bit um before we um turned the recorder on um Hmm. this is like a huge question but i love this first title of your uh, or the first sentence of your book um about the relationship between freedom and sexuality and a lot of your political writing around sexuality has um has explored that um really succinctly and i guess i'm wondering if you have an opinion about the relationship between freedom and consent <laughs> when it comes to sexuality yeah you just want to throw me in the deep end here. i do um, <laughs> cuz no, i that's... know you can i know you you've got big muscles you can swim <laughs> no that's good I, lo- I know i love it and it's something that i've been trying to figure out how to talk about publicly more so this will be good. This, I don't just want to ask good. you the same five questions, Connor. No. <laughs> right on. So, um, where'd you get your porn name from? Um, <laughs> Is that your real name? Yeah, totally. How what are you going to do when you, you retire? How did you get started? Uh, um, what kind of guys are you into? Do you have, what do you have to do before you have anal sex? Uh, yeah, How does that work? T- totally. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, so freedom, consent. Okay. So, um, so I think that the sex positive world has really latched onto this idea of consent as the sort of be all end all, right? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. the foundation of sexual ethics. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's a great and vital component. I'm going to repeat that. I think it's a vital component of sexual ethics. It's not enough. Um, why? Because consent has a terrible shadow side to it. 
first, the shadow side comes historically. You know, we don't really get to consent to what kind of consent culture allows us. So, you know, consent used to be defined by the church, right? Like, mm-hmm. we'll be the ones who tell you what you can consent to. Um, and, and, and what you really consent to is just a relationship with God in a certain way. Um, that's everybody's right is to consent to God in a certain way, but we're going to define what that means, right? Well, right now, at this moment, we have people who are uh, uh, certain feminists, um, certain, yeah, certain feminists who say, well, you are cons- you're not really consenting. You're saying you're consenting as oh, sex God. workers. Oh, God. But you're not actually consenting to anything, right? right? Like, you're actually deluded. So we're going to define consent for you. Or you have neuroscientists or you have uh, evolutionary psychologists who are saying, yeah, you think you're consenting to stuff, but actually it's just this pattern of determined actions made up by matter and motion. So you're really not consenting. It's just an illusion. Everything is sort of... So like this idea of consent, it's like, where are you getting that idea of consent from? I mean, I, it's about like free will and determinism too, if we want to totally. talk about philosophy. And... Or do you want to talk about psychology? Like. Yeah. Like, what we consent to, there's an aspect of what they're saying that's true, that we need to heed, which is, Mm. there's an unconscious. And sometimes we consent to things for terrible reasons. Sometimes we don't consent to things for terrible reasons. So, So what does consent mean? How is it defined? It's also defined by university manual codes of conduct so the people that work for the universities don't get sued. Right, 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 right. It's all constructed, you know, in this other realm. And and I think that we've seized on this idea because we somehow believe that it's really pure. But in fact, it's not. In fact, it... it, Or, 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 um, or like, once you come to a certain understanding, there will be complete clarity over, over the judgment that you will be able to make about what is consensual and what isn't. Absolutely. So, so the side I, the thing I go along with, with this idea of consent as a foundation of sexual ethics is if I say no, don't touch me. And and I really mean this in the realm of physical contact. If I say no, you don't get to touch me then, or you don't get to touch me in that way. Right. The end. Yeah. Like, that's you have to listen to that i might be totally fucked in the head for saying that i might actually want you to fuck me more than anything and i'm saying no Mm -hmm. but i've communicated no so you're not allowed to like that's i agree with that part and i think that that's everybody's right and that's sort of the most that's the most important material uh part of it Uh, right yeah but anyway then there's uh, that in the interest of in the interest of you know raising uh, having these conversations about consent so that there are less so that less people rape is uh-huh. that's the principle of what it's all about and it's gotten um, so uh, convoluted for reasons that you're describing so go ahead right so do we want to extend the model of rape and sexual violence into places that are not uh, related in the same way or related in a distinct way to sexual violence or rape or trauma or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And this is where it starts getting more complicated. So, for example, in San Francisco, you know, I went to this gym where guys would have sex in the steam room. Yeah. And for a really long time, for like 20 years at that gym, it just went on and everybody was cool with it. It was like, that's the gay gym. Dudes have sex in the steam room. You kind of know what you're getting into there, right? Yeah. 
Suddenly, straight people started moving into the neighborhood. The local politicians were much more interested in allowing, in inviting straight people into the Castro and inviting straight businesses, et cetera, et cetera. So this new culture started to filter in. And suddenly, the gyms panicked and closed the steam room. Right, because so, also for 20 years, there was an a culturally inherited understanding of cruising and yes. consent where if you're like, I actually just want to pump some iron today and somebody gives you the series of signifiers and you give the series of signifiers back and then totally. probably for the most part, somebody just moves on to the next person who's their type that they want to blow in the steam room. Right. Right. <laughs> right? And, and, and if that's what you, if you want to pump iron and get a blowjob, if you want to, just go there to, you know, suck dick, then then it's it was all um, copacetic. I'm sure there were instances of um, of non-consent or, you know, things that, that people were unhappy with during those 20 years, but in general, it was, um, it was functional. R- totally. And so, so it was functional historically, which is great. Like, you're talking about the, cu- the difference of the cultural context, the understanding of the context... But then even, and then even beyond that, then people started complaining, I'm seeing people having sex in that steam room. Right. And that violates my consent. Right. Now, this is where things start getting to a place where I feel uncomfortable. I don't think we can have the same rules of consent for viewing something as we can for engaging in a physical way with something. This is very hard to talk about because I, I think that... I think that we as a culture need to push on the boundary of what we allow in the visual field, hmm. um, push on the boundary of allow of what we allow other people unrelated to us to engage in sexually or even just to be naked in public. Yeah. Because you see, we have these arguments, for example, of politicians in certain states saying that women aren't allowed to take their shirts off in public, but men are. Right. The only way for women to take their shirts off in public and make that legal is to violate what we consider consent at this point is to say i don't care if you want to see my breasts or not i don't care if you think this is sexual or not for me to have the same kind of freedom as a man i need to be able to take my shirt off so i'm going to do it in protest that's the only way to make it happen so we have there's no way of doing it without being aware that there are going to be some people who either sexualize you or just have their attention drawn to you, and then it gets into the complicated question of asking for it. Like, right. if, you, if if I take my shirt off, I'm I'm female. Uh, I have breasts. If I take my shirt off in New York, where it's legal, right. in the park, and people stare at me, and I'm uncomfortable with that, like you know, it's uh, I always think of it as like this is the sort of um, toll. That I have to pay because, like, I want an even tan, or like, I'm more comfortable this way, or uh-huh. like, this is just what I want, or I want to exercise my freedom. Um, but, um, but that gets really murky and complicated when we start to talk about other things in terms of, in terms of asking for it um, with to- regards to, to- with regards to rape, and totally. and even just with regards to how it can feel really oppressive to have people staring at your tits all the time. I, I, t- totally. Which they will, by the way, do whether you have a shirt on or not. 
that, right? That may so, be true so, for others' tits more than mine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, which they may do. Right? No, I don't. I, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you, but you see, so so the thing the thing that I want to say is like, look, like our the problem with emphasizing consent over everything else, as vital as and important as it is, is if we don't examine scrutinize and question our own boundaries at the same time as supporting the concept of consent consent what we can consent to and the kinds of consent we're allowed diminish and become smaller and smaller and smaller because the conversation about sexuality becomes a conversation only in the negative space of what our boundaries are and what we allow what is tolerable only to us so while I in no way believe that anybody should ever be able to touch or engage in a sexual act with an unwilling person. I think that we have the duty as we support and uh, proliferate this concept of consent to examine our boundaries as well and understand and be responsible to our boundaries. Fuck yes. Absolutely. Um, I want to... um... It's another thing we could talk about all day. Um, I I want to um, talk. A, I want to come back a little bit to talking about um, occult stuff. Um, so first of all, um, so we've talked a little bit about you. Mm-hmm. Um, if people are curious about the occult, and we can have a, rec- a recommended reading list um, or mm. lectures to watch. Um, but if people want to start bringing that into their lives, particularly into their lives with regards to sexuality, do you have some tools for starting? Oh, in regards to sexuality? Yeah. <laughs> My, the, the biggest tool I think you can do is, is masturbate and watch what happens when you masturbate. Mm. So create an observer self, not every time because that's no fun. Yeah. Um, to do it every single time, or maybe it is fun for you every single time. I have no idea, but, but to, to notice this weird thing, like for, for men, I'll, I'll speak to people who have penises, right. Um, and who penises that ejaculate. So when you jerk off, you (laughs) close your eyes. If you're not watching porn, you close your eyes and you create this, um, this series of images, imaginative images, while you're conducting a simple, repetitive physical motion. See, this is a moment that I wish that this was video so people could <laughs> see you. me doing the jerk-off motion. <laughs> um, while doing a simple, repetitive motion, and by combining those things for about five, three to seven minutes, whatever, <laughs> um, half the substance that creates life comes erupting from your body. Now, this is very bizarre. We should we should stand back and see this as very strange. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like what how how's it and and then you notice like this world of bringing the imaginal world and the physical world together is very powerful and very strange. It's hmm. it's an and 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 for people who um for people who have <laughs> I'm always sort of struggling to make sure I live up to the responsibility of talking about genitals and gender in the right way. But for people who have clitorises, for people who have 
um, what is typically considered female anatomy. Sure. Masturbating, um, it, it also has this quality, which is that we all have access to an altered state of consciousness whenever we want. Hmm. At, uh, at any time even people who can't touch their own genitals like they have access to an altered state of desirous conscious if they want to yeah. but i think that it's like you have this you have access to this it's like you know uh people do hallucinogenic drugs all the time and that's awesome but like you can enter like a pretty bizarro world if you want from compared to the waking world if you if you masturbate. Yeah. So so the first thing I would say is pay attention to this thing that's always available to you. Yeah. Do it more and just pay attention to what's happening. Where's your feeling going? Where's the rest of the room going? What what kind of feelings are appearing in your body? Create a phenomenology of that. Create an observation of that. How, how do you how do you feel afterwards in terms of how you relate to other people and how to re- how you relate to your work and, totally. and how you relate to your body and what happens if you don't masturbate for uh, right, a period right. of time. Experiment or... with it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, do a cold experiment. And f- frankly, you can do that with anything. You can do that when you're reading a book. You can do that when you're walking down the street. Sure. It's creating a meditative noticing part of like walking. But you asked me in relation to sex. So if you can't just have sex all the time, well, you can have a sexual act with yourself whenever yeah. you want. Betty Johnson. Yeah. All right. Totally. <laughs> all right. While thinking of Betty Dodson, if you want to. You could totally think of Betty Dodson getting <laughs> fucked by a dog. Right. Anyway. Why not? <laughs> that's what she would want. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, the dog would have wanted it that way. <laughs> so that's, what, that's what Betty says. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and then what about... Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I love... Um, because of Betty Dawson and for a million other reasons, um, I always love um, the empowerment of um, uh, of masturbation in the sense that you know whatever it is that we're talking about, that you always have the power to um, to do that with yourself, and um, you know that that's another cultural thing that I think um, causes a lot of inadequacy and, and mm-hmm. shame um, for all of us around sexuality that like you got to find the right person to have that transcendent moment with mm-hmm. that you have to find somebody period um, anyway uh, so I, I love the idea of being able to make love to yourself and make magic happen mm-hmm. um, uh, but I am curious what are some ways that if you do have a uh, friend um, that you can mm. get naked with and um, and experiment with with all of these things. Um, what are some things that you can do um, with somebody else? Um, well, I think the, the first thing is if you're really going to do something with someone else, you need to tell them about it and talk yeah. to them about it. Yeah, speaking of consent. Yeah, I had a, I had a, I had a boyfriend once that I... Uh, I just decided I'm just going to do one little like magical thing with him and see, you know, and, uh, he, (laughs) it was the night, like he lived in New York and, uh, we were in San Francisco together and it was long distance relationship. And I like took some of my cum and I rubbed it on his wrist. And I like at the moment of like had my orgasm, I was like, I'm going to give this to him. Like what, whatever it was I was thinking in the moment. And then I like put it and that night he got home and he, was so delirious that he left all his luggage outside his door and he had these horrible nightmares the next day. This guy never really even remembered his dreams like in a serious way. Flipped out, had these horrible like 
and then like realized like he had left his luggage outside his house like or his apartment like it was terrible it was a terrible experience and I, I'm not perhaps I had nothing to do with that but I felt terrible about it yeah. you know I think that I think that it's possible that these things that these kinds of things can have serious consequences even though I was doing something for his benefit when I did it like um you know like I it was a sort of healing kind of thing that I was doing but I just had no right to do it. So I think if, first of all, talk to the person about it. Um, and then I think, uh, huh, it's, I mean, in some ways you're asking the wrong person because I don't do this kind of stuff that often. Um, but I think that they're, so I kind of, I kind of feel a little badly giving advice. I mean, it sounds like you might know a few more things than I do. Well, do you have any recommendations for people who might um, be able to tell the people more? Oh, uh-huh. Um, there's this guy, Donald Donald Craig, um, K-R-A-I-G, and he writes a lot about sex magic. There's, um, I mean, like we've been talking about Grant Morrison, that's primarily masturbation, very simple breakdown. Um, there is, uh, I mean... If you want to really get to it, you can check out Aleister Crowley. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm trying to remember. I think it actually might be something that I learned through Alan Moore, which uh-huh. wouldn't be surprising. Um, but I, I have this image in my mind of Crowley talking about um, anal sex being the most powerful magic available to <laughs> anyone. Is that is that right? Like, well, Is so- that something that he... I mean, I know he liked to have lots of butt sex, but... Um. <laughs> well, there was... there was, You're right. There's something, like, just him trying to convince other people, like, through that. But there was, there is a certain, apparently... I don't know because I'm not in it, but there's a certain level of initiation in the OTO, which involves... Uh, what is the, the OTO? The OTO, it's like... Um, it's just this sort of grand hierarchical order, you know, hmm. that stems from Crowley, but started before him... I might be getting this wrong, by the way. Um, it might not be the OTO, but let's just say, okay, if you know who Crowley is, uh, you will know where I'm wrong, and it's no big deal. If you don't know who he is, you'll look into the OTO and find out if I'm right or wrong, and it'll be great. Yeah. So anyway, there's a, there's a <laughs> level of initiation, and and that level of initiation involves getting get getting fucked in the ass, right? And now, my view on that is like. The really powerful thing about getting fucked in the ass and why, in some senses, homosexual men have been so threatening to people in power is, like, when you take the place that shit comes out of and you uh, reorganize and ritualize it Mm. into a place of pleasure, like, that's a pretty powerful transubstantiation, like act like that's so fucking beautiful right like (laughs) like i'm turning this place that is supposed to be the most repulsive disgusting thing on the human body and i'm saying fuck it actually i'm going to lick that i'm going to fuck it i'm going to stick my hands in it i'm going to look at it and be aroused like all of that is this really like um is this really powerful alchemical thing and uh you know, I mean, it's not like I think all all gay men or all people who are partaking in anal sex are doing that consciously. But if you can become conscious of that, it's, yeah. you know, uh, it's something pretty profound. I mean, it, it goes back to something that I was actually thinking about when we were talking about um, consent, which is that part of what makes it murky is also that humans 
have the ability to use their imaginations to create scenarios of believing that there is non-consent present right. when there is actually consent. And ironically, because the consent is there, because the mutual respect is there, the sort of seemingly like literal um, acts of, of something repulsive like shit or something... Um, or something uh, fearful like rape can be the most arousing and have the most potential for connection and compassion. And, you know, I mean, I, I look for in my partners the compassion enough to recognize that I want to be called dirty names and I want to, mm-hmm. you know... Um, be thrown around or I want to be um I want my ass beaten till it's black and blue you know or I want to be fucked in the ass or any of those things like um so on you know to the untrained eye on the surface it looks like darkness but it's actually freedom and compassion right that's you've given you presented a a definition of ritual because that's all it is right right I'm creating a framework right? Here's a frame. I've created this. So obviously I've consented to it. Right. Once I walk into that frame, crazy stuff is going to happen. Right. And I know I'm walking out of it. So it's like you bind it. You bind all that intensity in a space. It's like, it's just like someone drawing a pentagram on the floor and something happens within that pentagram as long as it's bound by the circle. Mm. Right. So, so, um, you, you draw it, the things happen in there, and then you step out of it, and, 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 and there it is. And which is why, again, also why S&M, mm-hmm. why uh, all sorts of sexual acts are, are, again, also threatening to people who are in power. Right. Because it's people getting training in ritual. Yeah. So, so once you get trained in ritual, hey, when I step into this framework, I'm going, you're going to uh, be raping me. Right. I'm going to actually even be scared. I'm going to be thrilled. There's going to be moments where I'm like, is he really raping me? Right. Or is she really raping me? Like, or is this just a, but, but there's a little part of me because this, I've done this framework that's like going to come out of this space. Yeah. Like that kind of, cons- that kind of toying with consent. Imagine if we applied that to um, money or we applied that to thinking about the government or we applied that to whatever. It's like we suddenly understand that we're actually inside and not consenting to being inside uh, a grand ritualistic system. Oh, man. So the more we create our own rituals, the more we start to see the ones that are all around us, the more we can step outside of those and what a threat that is. Fuck yes. (laughs) We figured it out. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think... think, um... I think that's a wrap. I think we, <laughs> yeah, no, no, we can, we can talk about other things. Um, we're, I know we're, we're getting a little short on time, but I feel, I feel really, um, I feel really enlivened by, by that connection. Awesome. That's fucking, um, that's the best. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. Um, one last thing that I wanted to ask you about is, um, and it's, so it's like quarter to three right now. Is that okay. cool? So, yeah, yeah, that's fine. So one last thing that I wanted to ask you about is, um, sort of like connected to this in terms of fiction mm-hmm. and in terms of the, 
ability to distinguish between fantasy and reality or fiction and reality. Um, and just, I, I don't know, I guess I'm thinking about the um, connection between some of um, the metaphors for all of these practical occult um, things that we see in fiction, like, I don't know if you've watched American Horror Story, but like anything like American Horror Story, anything mm -hmm. like that's, that's, you know, the X-Files, like anything that's fantasy mm -hmm. or science fiction or horror, um, I've always been, you know, speaking of things that we've always been drawn to, like I've always been drawn to these supernatural allegories. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like the the realism uh, that's there in the metaphor <laughs> is so much more compelling to me than than realism is. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, and I have been thinking a lot lately about how I feel like porn is like that as well, mm -hmm. um, and that the um, you know when people get upset, you know censorship. Going back to your discussion of of freedom, you know when um, when people censor things, it's usually you know really extreme imagery in fiction or really extreme imagery in hardcore sexuality. Mm -hmm. And, um, um, I guess, I guess my question is, what do you think the function of those, um, those fantasy worlds are in, in culture and why we, why we create them and why they're so threatening to the people who are making those big circles and mm -hmm. trying to keep mm -hmm. us unconsensually inside of them? So, so what are, what, what are the, you mean in porn particularly or? I, yeah, well, let's, I mean, you're a, a porn performer <laughs> uh -huh. um, and I, and I, you know, you think about porn um, from time to time. So, <laughs> so yeah. So, so specifically about porn. Um, well, porn, porn's such a weird case, right? Like porn is like, like porn, porn is, porn is athletic. You know, like, I'm going to get my body to do this thing. I'm going to be in it and not in it at the same time. I'm mm. going to sort of arrange it in this way, right? Like, it's it's, it's weirdly yogic, you know? Like, yeah. like, you know, when you have to get fucked on a, like, as I have on a stationary, but mo motorcycle, it wasn't moving, but still, it's tough. Like, when you have to get fucked on a motorcycle for, like, three hours... Like, you, you learn a bit about what you can do with your body and what you can't do with your body and what well, your limits right. are, right? It's, it's also about um, creating a moment of connection while also cheating out. <laughs> to totally. Right. Yes, totally. And then, yeah, and, and, and then, you know, like, you're acting, but you actually, at least in gay porn, you actually have an orgasm. You know, like, mm -hmm. it's... it's I, I'm not sure, you know, some women have orgasms when they're in porn and some don't. Um, and you're sort of like entering into this fantasy role. Hi, I'm the doctor and you're the patient and I'm going to fuck you. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> it's all this weird, like all porn is like this weird cosplay stuff, you know? Sure, like, sure. So, so I think it's all that stuff. Now I, I'm a little unsure. Are you asking me about what the viewer, how, what's threatening about people viewing that? Or are you asking me what's threatening about people doing it? Well, I think that they're wrapped up together. I mean, uh -huh. um, people who object to porn generally, um, you know, perpetuate um, stigma against the people who produce it, as well as the people who um, who watch it, often hypocritically, right? There are mm. many people who watch porn and then condemn the people who create that porn. Right. Um, 
I guess I guess it's just a general question about why do you think um, porn is a, something that people are so interested in censoring? Yeah, well, I think I think there are two sides of it, and the one side is on the one hand, whenever people legislate against sex, including porn, it's it's very often not about sex itself, right? Like. I think a lot of the stuff that's happening with porn right now and porn censorship and all that, you know, especially in the UK, is about people in power trying to control the internet in general. Right, right, right. So, so they use porn because they've also created a culture where people have very hair trigger responses to anything with sexual content right. or sex whatsoever. So, using porn as a sort of canary in the mind to be able to control other stuff, I think that's there. On the other hand, I think there's a side that, uh, uh, sex has power in and of itself, which is threatening. So if you have people experiencing with the landscape of their desires and it becomes so normalized that you have, like we did in ancient Rome, frescoes of people fucking painted on living room walls next right. to like whatever else. And it's not a big deal. And there are like mugs with penises as the handles and all that kind of stuff. And sex just sort of, and it becomes normalized. Well, then... Uh, uh, first of all, we're more cognizant of our of the access that we have to a certain kind of power, which are the sorts of power that we talked about before. But then also, uh, uh, so we gain power, a certain access to a certain kind of power. And then the flip side is the people who had been using that to manipulate us in certain ways lose access to that power because it's just like them telling us don't eat we're not gonna let you have food anymore which also they're doing um oh with with soylent yeah right with soylent well with soy for that matter with (laughs) with 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 all the with every gmo fake food product that we've been experiencing since you know a little before world war ii right which by the way some of those have links to sexual repression which is another interesting story um i can't wait to read that article i know well if you've ever heard of someone saying moral fiber well that comes oh, from fuck. that comes from uh that comes from uh kellogg and post um creating anti-sex cereals to heal people from the wounds they'd inflicted with themselves with masturbation oh my god like um, that movie the road to wellville <laughs> was there... anthony hopkins do you know it's about it, anthony hopkins plays kellogg yes i've heard and about it's it. about yep. his yeah i i just remember yeah. Yeah. So, so there's this interesting like fisting, there. like doctors who are, you know, uh, 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 curing, uh, you know, consumption with fisting. I don't even know. But yeah, it's a, it's a, awesome. it's a, it's a bizarre movie. But there's a lot of famous. Well, I really, I really want to see it. I've never seen it. I've heard about it though. Yeah. But but I think that there's like, anyway, it's Moral like fiber. Fuck, man. Yeah. <laughs> so so if you have like people who are like, so, so anyway. People, the people in power lose power. The people who aren't in power or who could be gain power, uh, gain access to power, and things start sort of evening up a little bit. And so I think that's the other side. So on the one hand, it's not really related to sex at all. On the other hand, it's totally related to sex. So, yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, the last time that I interviewed you and the last time we talked, you were saying that you were on, like, a little bit of a hiatus. Are you still on a hiatus from performing? A, a porn hiatus? Yeah, I'm kind, of a, I'm kind of what I refer to as porn fat right now, which just means that by the standard of the companies I work for, I have a belly and it's not... Like, oh, man. I, 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 wouldn't feel, I wouldn't feel right going on to set for most of those companies right now. But also, 
I've just been so busy with other things. Um, I am now the vice president of the Adult Performer Advocacy Committee. So, Which is so amazing. Yeah, I'm totally psyched. So that's, I have a meeting tonight, actually. So that so so that's how I'm staying involved right now. Um, I definitely want to make more movies. It's just, uh, you know, like, the funny thing about being in porn is, like, you can never, it, like, if you do too much, you're overexposed. Yeah. If you do, if you don't do enough, you're retired. Right. It's like, no, I'm not overexposed or retired. I'm just, like, doing my own thing. And when yeah. I do some porn, I'll do some porn. Like, yeah. just because I'm not doing five a month, like, I did, like, three years ago or whatever, you know. I mean, I, I would have, like, ten movies coming out in a year and people would be like, are you retired? And I'd be like, no. <laughs> I just, I'm like, it's not, you know, I mean, I think it's, retired is a ridiculous term for something that's usually not someone's primary job. Yeah, and, I mean, it, it's it's a reflection of, of stigma, too, I think, like, going back to totally. what you were joking out about where people are like, so when are you going to get a real job? Yeah, like, right, you right. Stopped do- okay, so now you've, now you've come to your senses and you stopped doing that. Yeah. Um, well, on that note, um, what kind of guys are you into, <laughs> Guys, Guys that just totally think I'm cute. Um, I'm, I, I have, I'm sure you, so you have a lot of options. I, yeah. <laughs> I uh, you know, I like everybody. I mean, not, I don't like everybody, but I, I'm, I, I'm in, I know it when I see it kind of guy, which is actually an effect of being in porn. Like once you have sex with like, once you get paid to have sex with the people that everybody supposedly says are attractive, right. you suddenly like start refining your own taste. Cause you're like, I had that experience. Really? Definitely. Yeah. 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 It was much more, uh, like a sense of discernment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because it was like, what are you going to, like, you know, someone trying to impress me with their abs or, like, how big their dick is. It's like, I've had bigger. I've seen, <laughs> I've seen like, more abs on someone than you have. Like, it's not going anywhere for me. Like, sometimes it might, but that's part of a whole thing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's not like I'm never attracted to big dicks or, you know, ripped abs, but it's like, it's, it's definitely not... It's just what I want. So there's hope out there for the guys with the big dicks and ripped ass. (laughs) You still have a chance, perfectly chiseled, handsome, big dicked, rich dudes. Okay, that's great. They're not going to cry themselves to sleep tonight. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're brilliant and beautiful. Thank you. um, Thank you so much. And yeah, I can't wait to see what more comes out of you. (laughs) And and if you want to see more that comes out of me, it's just just go to my Twitter. It's just at Connor Habib. I have a website, which is ConnorHabib.com, but I'm changing it right now. I think it just leads you to my blog right now. So, um, yeah. And the book, the sex book, yeah, um, comes out from Disinfo in 2015. Yeah, isn't it weird that there were no other books of note with that title? Like, or no, like really books that had done really well. I was shocked when they chose they chose the title, and I was like, "There's got to be something." But then I looked, and there was nothing. I mean, so. we live in a in a Google age now, honestly, where like you want you want to just when people say it's sex, it's actually quite brilliant. I, it's better than I know. it's better than being obscure. I know because then people are going to find you. Yeah, I know, totally. Awesome. Oh, well, um, well, I can't wait to read it. Thank you. It was so great talking to you. Yeah, you too. I thought I knew the meaning of love. I was mistaken. I thought I knew the meaning of love. I was mistaken. Why?
to that is produced and hosted by Tina Horn. Our theme song is by Pine from Oakland, California, and our website was designed by the one and only Justin Levesque. We are exclusively sponsored by Smitten Kitten, who you can visit at smittenkittenonline.com. Thanks for downloading or streaming episode 14. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Into That Podcast, and at Tina Horns S. Please subscribe on iTunes as if you were completely under my power. And take a second to give us a reading or a review. I'm Tina Horn, and if you need me, I'll be starting the revolution with butt sex. Till next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 